This is From Our Perspective, Voices of the Directly Impacted, a monthly show from Justice Radio with your hosts, Marian Anderson and Craig Williams. Today, we're talking about our own experiences with the criminal legal system, from courtrooms to convictions, and our process of navigating a system that eventually led to our own imprisonment. I'm Marian Anderson, a campaign organizer with the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls, an abolitionist organization led by formerly incarcerated Black women working to end the incarceration of women and girls entirely. I'm Craig Williams, also a campaign organizer with the National Council. Marion and I are leading the Free Her campaign right here in Maine, alongside our comrades across the New England states. Free Her is a national organizing campaign. The New England states, also known as our battleground states, were chosen strategically because they have the lowest number of incarcerated women in the country. Yeah, you know, Craig, a lot of people ask me how come our focus is on women and girls. And I got to tell you, I really love this question because it opens up a much deeper conversation. For me, it's like, you know, why wouldn't our focus be on women and girls? Women and girls are the fastest growing population of incarcerated people, but often they're not the topic of conversation and discussions about the carceral system. In fact, they're often excluded from the conversation entirely. But when we consider the fact that women, girls, transgender, and non-binary people are the most vulnerable populations in prison, then we must also consider that unless this work is being done from a queer, Black, feminist perspective, it's just not as inclusive as it needs to be for the liberation of all. Thank you, Marion. I appreciate you sharing a little bit about our work. So last week, Catherine and Leo interviewed District Attorney Jonathan Sarbeck of Cumberland County and Defense Attorney Jeremy Pratt. They basically walked us through the process of the criminal legal system from their perspectives based on their positions. I found that interview to be valuable in understanding the roles of the prosecution and the defense in criminal cases right here in Maine. But arguably, the most important perspective comes from those entering into the system. We often hear about the criminal legal system from the perspectives of people in positions of power. We hear about it from many who work from within legitimize, maintain, and uphold it. However, that conversation begins to shift when we hear the stories of those who have been through it without lived experience. Not only can we not understand what a person has been through, we simply cannot judge them by the same standards we judge ourselves. Marion, is there anything that stuck out to you from that interview? Anything relevant to your own experience that you'd like to share with us today? Yeah, Craig, thank you. You know, for me, I think what stuck out the most from that conversation was the lack of transparency, specifically as it relates to information presented to the grand jury on behalf of the prosecution, which is by law kept secret. That information is not shared with defense attorneys, right? Even though that information is directly relevant in defending their clients. It's absurd, really, but I mean, I'm not necessarily surprised by the lack of transparency. When I 
think about all the families still awaiting answers regarding their loved ones' deaths inside county jails and prisons across the state, or the blatant dishonesty regarding the continued use of solitary confinement within the Department of Corrections, or even in my own research related to county jails and the Department of Corrections budgets, I pretty consistently find a lack of transparency and accountability. So however absurd, I mean, I've really just come to expect as much in this work. However, I did find a lot of my own experiences validated during last week's show as a person who has struggled with mental health and substance related issues, I could not afford to obtain a defense attorney for my legal representation. Uh, I made my initial court appearance while I was in custody, nearly three days after my arrest, and I did that without an attorney. In Maine, uh, those who cannot afford to obtain an attorney are given what is called the lawyer of the day. Now, the lawyer of the day is a random attorney present in the courtroom who is appointed to represent all of the people in court that day for their initial appearance. An initial appearance is also known as an arraignment. Now, during an arraignment, the defendant is informed of the charges against them, and they are required to enter a plea of either guilty, not guilty, or perhaps no contest. But in my situation, um, I, I actually was not guilty of the charges against me. So, of course, that was going to be my plea. But then it became a matter of bail. Now, the Eighth Amendment under the Constitution of Rights ensures that excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. However, there is no individual context considered with this amendment. You know, my bail was set that day at $2,000, which may not be excessive to say someone who could afford to obtain their own legal defense, but for someone who is poor, $2,000 is absolutely excessive. And, you know, for someone who is unable to make bail, they remain incarcerated for the duration of their criminal legal proceedings. You know, this is often referred to as pretrial detention. Now, if you ask me, Craig, that's cruel, right? Like I had not been found guilty. I was a full-time college student with full-time employment and most importantly, a, a single mother. And although I was experiencing challenges with mental health and substance use, I still had a life. And that life was deeply and irrevocably impacted simply because I was poor and could not afford to buy my freedom. So what about you, Craig? What was your experience with obtaining legal defense? And did you also experience pretrial detention? Or were you able to make bail and proceed with your case without being removed from your community? Uh, yes, Marion, I was removed from my community. <clears throat> I did suffer from pretrial detention multiple times. I was denied bail twice, which is a constitutional right to have. But before I continue on that topic, I would like to mention that they say you're innocent until proven guilty, but that's a lie. We all know that because if you're actually innocent until proven guilty, then you, Marion, would have been home with your family, actively engaging in your life in a productive way. You wouldn't have been locked in a cage 
the whole pre-trial proceedings. And as for me, I have a lengthy arrest history. I've been arrested many times in multiple states. In fact, the last time I was arrested, I was living in South Carolina. I was engaged to be married, raising my daughter, and we had just bought a townhouse. So in a hurry to get my fiance to work one day, I was pulled over for speeding, but arrested for driving with a suspended license. My fiance bailed me out for a couple hundred dollars and, I, and we made our way home. A few hours after being home, we heard knocks at the door. Now my fiance, of course, wouldn't let them in, but they continued to harass us. Not only did they show up to my house repeatedly, but they also showed up to my job. I didn't really know why they were trying to reach me, but understandably, I avoided all contact with them as long as I could. Eventually, I had to contact a lawyer in New York just, to, just so I can safely find out why the cops have been harassing me. My lawyer informed me that I had pending charges in the state of New York. So then at that point, I had no choice but to return to New York and turn myself into the authorities. Although the charges were not very clear to me at that point, I just wanted to get this over with and return to the life I had spent so much time creating with my family. Now I'm poor, so when being arraigned on felony charges, I too was court appointed an attorney from the County Public Defender's Office. Similar to the term um, used here in Maine, lawyer for the day, there's also a term in New York called ATB lawyers. They do pro bono work. I was appointed one of those to represent me as counsel. When there's a conflict of interest, for example, when there's multiple people being represented by the same public defender's office, the court would exercise the eighth, the, the sixth amendment, excuse me, and provide an attorney pro bono, which can be a private attorney who serves the public with free legal representation to those in need. Yes, I have experience with pre-trial and anyone who cannot make bail experience it as well. Unfortunately, I could not afford a $30,000 bail, especially when my family doesn't own a house they can put up for my bond. So this was an issue in New York State for so long that activists banded together to eliminate cash bail for most misdemeanors and some nonviolent felony charges. The law surrounding the elimination of cash bail passed in 2019, along with open and automatic discovery, which requires prosecutors to disclose their evidence to the defense earlier in the case proceedings. It's crazy to me that Maine still has cash bail, but let's talk more after a quick break. You are listening to From Our Perspective, Voices of the Directly Impacted, here on Justice Radio, with your hosts, Marian Anderson, and Craig Williams. Thank you for joining us. Today, we are talking about our personal experiences of navigating the criminal legal system from arraignments to convictions and everything in between. In 2019, the ACLU of Maine found almost 40,000 people were being held in jail before trial, many of them because they were unable to afford cash bail for misdemeanors. As a result, already vulnerable people face losing their jobs, children, homes, 
and quality of mental and physical health. In addition to wealth-based disparities, hash bell creates racial disparities. According to the Prison Policy Initiative, Black and brown defendants are at least 10 to 25% more likely than white defendants to be detained pre-trial or to have to pay money bail. Although Maine has taken a small but important step in addressing inequalities by passing LD-1703 in 2021, a bill that ends cash bail for all Class E misdemeanor crimes. There is still so much more that could be done to address the harm impacts of cash bail. For example, Chicago has just passed legislation that that reverses the criminalization of poverty. According to an article on Injustice Watch, written by Emmanuel Evans, Cash bail will not be abolished entirely, but starting January 1st of 2023, all nonviolent defendants who cannot afford to pay for their release will no longer be incarcerated pre-trial. Instead, judges must impose the least restrictive conditions necessary to ensure defendants' appearance in court. The law also requires courts to provide additional pretrial services for defendants, such as reminders of court dates and transportation to court appearances. Maine is the only state without a public defender system. Instead, private lawyers are contracted by the Maine Commission on Indigent Legal Services to represent those who cannot afford their own attorneys. This is a voluntary system. Recently, Maine officials found that 11 lawyers have more than 301 open cases and half of the open indigent cases are being managed by just 33 lawyers. According to an article posted on October 31st, um, 2022, written by Samantha Hogan from the Maine Monitor, court clerks from Aroostook, Kennebec, Knox, Penobscot, Sagadogat, Washington, York counties couldn't find an available lawyer who was qualified to work on cases for 34 people that month. Yo, Craig, you struggle a little bit with Sagadahawk? I know, Sagadahawk. My bad. Sagadahawk. Listen, I know you're not from Maine, but you'll get it sometime, right? (laughs) That was a good effort. Uh, So listen, to be honest, Craig, it's, it's crazy to me when you think about these statistics, right? When we think about 11 lawyers having more than 300 cases open and uh, over half of the open indigent cases being managed by just 33. Like that's, that's incredibly sad. It's like, I like can't even imagine all of the people who are receiving terrible representation in courtrooms across the state because, you know, these attorneys are being asked to do caseloads this large or, uh, there's just not enough attorneys to to you know cover these cases. For me, I didn't even meet my court-appointed attorney until I had already been incarcerated pre-trial for like two months. And prior to meeting him, though, I, I did receive correspondence in the mail, right? But that correspondence indicated a conflict of interest. 
So my court appointed attorney was actually married to an assistant district attorney, right? He was married to a prosecutor. So I had no way of knowing which prosecutor. It, it very well could have been the prosecutor in my case, for all I knew. Uh, it, it feels like if they were going to allow this conflict of interest, certainly they would allow others. So at, at that point, I had two options. I could fire my attorney and wait another couple of months before being appointed a new attorney to proceed with my case, or I could accept this conflict of interest, accept that my attorney was married to a prosecutor, take my chances and consent to moving forward immediately. Now, as anyone would tell you who's ever spent any time in jail or prison, you become like acutely aware of each moment that passes, of each day that passes. And you know that you just cannot afford to prolong your criminal proceedings. You know, life on the outside continues to go on in your absence. And for me, well, I, I had a child to consider. And the thought of choosing to prolong my criminal legal proceedings, uh, knowing how my incarceration was impacting him, well, that, that's unfathomable. That's not something that anybody would choose. So, you know, I, I proceeded with my lawyer and I spent about six months in jail uh, before finally relenting to a plea deal that included an admission of guilt and time in prison. Now, remember earlier, I, I had told you that I was not actually guilty of the charges against me, but because I had a prior conviction, because I had uh, prior convictions on my record, I knew that if I took it to trial and lost, I was facing much harsher sentencing. You know, and it's my understanding that most people do face harsher sentencing when they take their case to trial and they lose. Uh, Craig, you took your case to trial, right? Thanks. I took three cases to trial, and the third case I took to trial, I blew. Oh, well, listen, I'm not sure I know anyone else who's actually taken their case to trial simply because they were like terrified of receiving maximum sentences if they lost. I'm so curious to to learn about how that played out for you. Like, is there anything you'd like to share about your experiences of taking a case to trial? Honestly, Marion, I don't I don't like to talk about it because that means I have to revisit it mentally. So basically, I did go to trial and I did receive the maximum sentence, you know, which everyone is afraid of getting. So people take deals and cop out, please. So it's crazy when I think about the plea deal they offered me, as opposed to the sentence I actually got when I took it to trial. Their, their original offer was uh, three and a half to seven years. But after losing at trial, I received a sentence of 10 and a half to 21. I just like to mention that the judge commented um, that he was being lean on me because I could have spent the rest of my life in prison. He threatened me with uh, 50 to 90 years for perjury. And at the when it was first said to me, I couldn't even believe that. I, nobody is doing that many years for perjury. It's an A misdemeanor in New York. It's an A misdemeanor. You know, if it's a felony, it could get reduced to a misdemeanor and you get slapped on your wrist and you go home. So that's what I was thinking. You know, these 13 counts would get dropped. But unfortunately, it didn't. 
I was also thinking about, like, in retrospect, I was thinking about what District Attorney Jonathan Sarbeck said last week when he said that district attorney's goals are not to get guilty verdicts and place people in jails and prisons. But that's simply not true. It is the job of any district attorney to prosecute. That's their job. Their entire goal is to get convictions. When you think about their jobs from this perspective, you can understand why it's beneficial for them when it comes to Maine's grand jury proceedings being kept secret. That right there benefits nobody except for prosecuting attorneys like Jonathan Sarbeck. It's politics. District attorneys are known for withholding evidence across the nation. If they are not convicting anybody, then their career as a district attorney is going nowhere. Listen, thank you, Craig. You made some, some solid points here about the function of a district attorney in the criminal legal system. And you certainly highlighted some discrepancies and what we heard in what we heard last week and sort of how it is structured, right? Uh, and I really, really appreciate you sharing some of your story with us today. I know it's sometimes difficult to to revisit those things, you know, and think back about some of our darkest times, but I think it's so important that, you know, folks with lived experience have the opportunity to talk about their stories, um, you know, if for nothing more than to create some, some understanding of the dynamics uh, of this system. So, so thank you, Craig. Thank you, Marion. Um, I really, really enjoyed your contributions to this conversation today. And I look forward to having so many more conversations with you in the future. I'm going to go ahead and sign off with your signature. Love and rage. Everybody, love and rage. Next week, please join Linda Small and Mackenzie Kelly on Creating Windows, Not Bars, here on Justice Radio, when they unpack the social stigmatization of the children of incarcerated parents, their families, and justice-impacted people. In the meantime, please, please, please check out the Court Watch Main Project at courtwatchme.org, where you can volunteer to observe Maine's court proceedings and support a meaningful effort for change. Thanks y'all for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Update. So you know that people keep going in and out of this system, right? People keep getting arrested. Things still keep happening, even though this show doesn't go on, right? All the time. So we had to come back to this show and give you a quick update. Some recent news over the weekend. There was a judge that released three people from the Washington County Jail citing lack of attorneys. Washington County Court did not have a lawyer lined up Monday to represent people making an initial court appearance. And that prompted District Judge David Mitchell to order the release of three people arrested over the weekend. This just brings us back to what we were just talking about, right? Like there's not enough attorneys, people are not being represented. And in this case, this judge decided what was just was to release the folks who had been arrested. Craig, tell me, how are you feeling about this? Marion, Marion, Marion. I'm actually excited that 
this had happened um, for these uh, three individuals. Because I know if I was seeing my day in court and a uh, judge let me go, I would have been, you know, tap dancing my way up out of there, you know. But um, it's a it's a it's a good day, and some good things are 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 happening. And it's it's just, it's sad that um, it had to it had to happen, you know, to the point where uh, individuals aren't having counsel. Counsel isn't available out here in Maine. That's such a sad thing, you know. We should, people, folks should have access to legal representation. It's their constitutional right. Yeah. So I have, I have similar feelings. I don't think it's sad at all. Um, I think it speaks to a sad system that we know isn't necessarily broken, right? It was designed this way, but I think it speaks to to something creative, right? Like if this judge was like, nah, we're not keeping these people incarcerated. We have to release them. They don't have an attorney. Like, why can't we do that with everybody else, whether or not they have an attorney who maybe is being held pre-trial, but can't make a $200 bail, right? Or like a $500 bail. Like, Facts. Yeah, like, I don't know why we're not doing more of this. Like, I, I want to hit this judge up and like, thank him for his, his just service. These are the things we need to be doing, looking at cases, looking at people, really deciding whether or not we need to incarcerate them pre-trial over a couple of hundred dollars or, you know, even a thousand dollars. Like, why why are we keeping people in cages before they're found guilty at all? Right. Regardless well, we, of the go money, ahead, ahead. you know that. Oh, go I ahead. know it's the money. I know. I know Say that. Um, go ahead. I hear but you go. Like, go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for real though. Like this was this this was a damn good decision. And uh, you know, I got respect. I got respect for that judge for making this calling the shot, making this yep. choice. Um, you know, but I think I don't we normally do that. I don't shout out judges, but yeah. Yeah, I don't normally do that either, but I ain't never heard of a judge just letting people go, right? Like right. I think Say we that. need to well. see more of this. So yes. Everybody with that, we just wanted to come back and update you. I, I know you thought the show was over, but we felt like this needed to be included in today's show. It's important for people to know that alternatives do exist, right? And not everybody needs to be held. People can be let go. You know, I hope more of this happens across the board for Maine specifically. You too, Craig? Yes, yes, yes. We do need more of this out here in Maine. We need more of this to happen all over the nation, wherever it's happening, wherever it's not happening now. All right. Thanks y'all for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Also, please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, on Facebook, Justice Radio. Give us a like, give us a follow, tell your friends. Uh, our, all our shows can be found on our, on our Facebook page. They'll also um, be featured on Twitter and Instagram and, of course, WMPG. So check us out. We invite questions. Hit us up on social medias. Let us know what you'd like to hear about, topics you'd like to cover. Uh, we're happy to answer any questions that you have. And I want to give a special shout out, a big thanks to blues man Samuel James for his gift of music that opens and closes each episode in our series. 